Hi, this is Mark Hiskowitz, editor-at-large for MMNM, and welcome to the MMNM podcast. This week, we welcome back to the podcast investigative journalist Serrani Fernando. Serrani last appeared on the show in early March, right after wrapping up an original podcast series dubbed The COVAX Files, in which she dove deep into the COVID vaccine race with top experts from around the world. If you haven't done so yet, check out that series at thecovaxfiles.com. Since then, she's been in preparation mode for additional episodes of her podcast, where she'll be touching on issues specifically safety. So when the FDA and the CDC last week recommended pausing use of J&J's COVID vaccine while the agencies investigate an apparent side effect of the shot, cases of quote-unquote rare and severe types of blood clots in six women ages 18 to 48, I decided to invite her back for another discussion on what that means for J&J, makers of the mRNA-based shots, as well as for vaccine hesitancy in general. Hey, Sarani. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> great, great, thanks. Uh, before we get to the interview with Sarani, first some housekeeping items as we usually do on this podcast. Brent has a number of initiatives uh, going on right now, but just a couple that are near term. Uh, if you're listening to this, it's either deadline day for submission to the MMM Awards. We're close to it, so be sure to get your entries in. You can find out more information at mmm-awards.com. Also, our spring conference, MMM Transform, Navigating the Next, is coming up May 4th through the 6th. It's free to register at mmm-transform.com. And MMM Hall of Femme, uh, which we announced the list earlier this year, um, we have a virtual collective and awards ceremony coming up on June 3rd. We hope you'll join us for that. It's also free to register uh, at mmmhalloffemme, all one word, dot com. And as always, you can find out more about these events at the all new mmm-online.com. Okay, back to the interview with Sarani. Uh, you know, just wanted to put out the general caveat. This, this is being taped on Tuesday afternoon and will be aired in all likelihood on Wednesday, April 21st. So this is the situation as we know it at press time, uh, but it's a fast moving news story. So let's just recap things. Last Tuesday, the FDA and CDC recommended a pause on the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine while the agencies investigate an apparent side effect of the shot. Six cases of blood clots all in women under 50. And last Wednesday, the CDC then decided it needed more time to review and collect data, extending what might have been a two-day pause uh, to another week. And that gave Dr. Anthony Fauci, the Biden administration's top medical advisor, time to make the rounds on the Sunday morning talk shows, uh, which he did this past Sunday. And he said that a decision will be made by this Friday, April 23rd. And so here we are. Uh, Sarani, let's start with just having you tell us about these safety signals uh, that triggered the pause. And can you put the blood clot risk into perspective? Yeah. So um, as you said, it was six cases uh, of a sort of dangerous blood clotting that appeared after 6.8 million doses were delivered. And in these cases, there was a type of blood clot called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or CVST. And that was seen in combination with a low level of blood platelets. Um, and that was mainly in young women. And the issue with this is that it affects the veins in the brain. So it's it's more serious than sort of super superficial blood clots that you might see, for example, with deep vein thrombosis. And in and in some cases, this, you know, serious blood clot can can be fatal. So it so it is something that warrants um, you know, a deep dive into to seeing how the vaccine is actually linking um with uh causing some of these blood clots. And, you know, it it was seen in in women in between the ages of 18 and 48 and the symptoms occurred six to 13 days after vaccination so those are the two clues that they've been able to to sort of 
gather from the events that have happened. But as as we know, it's six out of 6.8 million. That's one in a million. So it's really still a little bit hard to nail down who exactly might be predisposed to some of this risk. And it is very, very rare. And I think you've you've had the the a lot of the um sort of uh you know i guess fauci and a lot of the top experts saying that the the regulators are doing this with an abundance of caution just because there is a lot of trust issues around the vaccination um drive and they want to make sure that they're they're being truthful to the public and and being as transparent as possible but today we actually heard that the ema um the eu the eu regulator uh they made a statement um, saying that they believe that the jane j vaccine should carry a warning of the potential risk of rare blood clots, but um, they say that the benefits outweigh the risk. And I guess in the next few days, we'll we'll wait to hear what the US regulators will say. But I think, sure. you know, just putting this into perspective, um, I think that, you know, when we think about getting COVID, uh, you know, we are putting ourselves at a greater risk of potentially fatal or severe repercussions, um, but also not just you know, you know, severe hospitalization and death on a general sense um, with how the, the virus works, but also the virus has been linked to, to blood clots and strokes and heart attacks. So when we put things into perspective, I think we have to sort of really look at what the benefits are with how this vaccination works for the greater population um, versus what sure. it's doing on a, on a rare, uh, on rare events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank, thank you for making that point that you know, getting the J&J shot is almost certainly less dangerous than remaining vulnerable to the coronavirus, you know, for the majority of people, particularly lo those who are at high risk. But, uh, you know, just one, one follow-up question there. Um, do we even know that um, the uh, vaccine is what caused uh, those cases? So I, I think this is an interesting point because what I've heard from people is that, well, you know, experts discussing this is that there does seem to be a clear link that, you know, these these rare events, the, the cerebral, you know, blood clots are happening uh, amongst just the adenoviral vector vaccine. So we've, we've been hearing, you know, more in Europe, not so much in the US of cases of, of the, the similar side effect occurring in, in a similar um, population taking the vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is also an, an adenoviral vector vaccine, slightly different because it's the a chimpanzee adenoviral vector versus the Johnson Johnson one, which is a human adenoviral vector. But that seems to be a bit of an obvious clue. And I think that it there does definitely seem to be a link. I, I don't think it's a case of it's just, um, you know, a random event that would, would occur in any normal um, population. You know, I, I think they've done the maths and, and these rare events are happening at a greater rate than they would happen in, in any given normal population. So we'll just have to sort of figure out what the exact phenotype is that, sh you know, is predisposed to this potential rare side effect. Mm, yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, the AstraZeneca. It's been widely reported that vaccine has been associated with some side effects um, over in the EU, also you know, blood clot related and also rare. And, uh, you know, risk communications um, are key here. So we'll get into that in a moment as well. But um, just switching gears for a second, can you tell us what did this pause uh, do to J&J &J stock price? 
Yeah, so I had a had a look at that, and actually, you know, surprisingly, it didn't do too much. I mean, I mean, maybe surprisingly, but unsurprisingly, at the same time, I mean, J and J is a huge company, um, and they have stated that they're doing this vaccine on a nonprofit basis. So, um, you know, I think straight after the announcement, it might have dipped about one percent, but I had a look today, and it was up five percent since then. So, hasn't done a whole lot, and I think you know, for for J and J. I think there there's confidence in you know the science behind behind the vaccine and and also I think people have, have seen the the vaccine drive for J and J is more of a PR social responsibility move, especially you know after some PR issues uh, in in recent years. So so not not a whole lot in terms of the stock price. They're they're not expecting a huge amount of revenue from this um, mm-hmm. from this vaccine. Right, yeah, and you can kind of interpret it that it's a good thing that that the regulatory authorities are being fully transparent and acting out of an abundance of caution, which which could uh, boost confidence, or you know it could sway some some people who are hesitant the other way. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, let, let's just talk about the upcoming Friday decision since that's looming. Take us through the the options there. The FDA could cancel the the J and J vaccine. They could lengthen the pause uh, or they could resume vaccinations, right? Yeah, so anything's possible. Um, I think the the EMA decision that came out today sort of indicates a little bit of a clue. A lot of the time, these regulators are largely aligned. I mean, in a lot of cases, they, they do um, diverge. But I think cancelling the vaccination would be a huge move for them, which I, I don't feel like they have enough, they would have enough information to make that kind of a, you know, you know, um, huge sort of, yeah, a huge move. Um, I th- I think that they might do something similar to the EMA in terms of, you know, recognizing that there is possibly a rare risk of blood clotting connected to this vaccine as, um, you know, they, they start to investigate more, being a little bit more pragmatic and who gets the vaccine, maybe certain populations, you know, the women in that age group might um, be, have the opportunity to be offered a, a different vaccine. And, you know, really getting ahead of things with instructing health professionals um, in, in the way they should be monitoring patients, taking the vaccine and, and treating them um, at the appropriate moment if they do present with um, with some of these rare, rare blood clots. But I think it would be surprising for them to cancel it altogether. Uh, I think that the situation in the U.S. is still pretty serious. So I uh, probably, you know, they can't really afford to to lose lose that, you know, option in their armamentarium. Sure, sure. Right. Um, especially, you know, when the public health message is that just take whatever shot becomes available um, and yeah. you want to make sure that there's a, you know, a, a healthy uh, number of choices there. So if and when the shot does reappear, uh, because it, it seems, you know, less likely than not that, that they would, uh, you know, take it off the market completely, uh, but just kind of let it resume, but, you know, with some kind of uh, risk communication, Dr. Fauci, you know, uh, for his part has said it might carry a warning a restriction or a risk assessment in that particular population of young women. And as you pointed out, you know, the EMA said uh, Tuesday that the shot could carry a warning of potential risk for blood clots and that regulators in individual member countries should be the ones to decide whether the vaccine should be generally available to the public. But might we see the U.S. discouraging or even barring you know, that group from taking this particular vaccine? Yeah, I think it's hard to tell, you know, how strong the messaging might be. I think, 
given that there's already so much caution around the vaccine and vaccine safety, I do think that where it makes sense um, and there are other vaccines available, that an extra level of caution is applied to this population. I mean, that, that sort of makes sense in terms of until more information surfaces and, and, and then guidance might might change, right? So it's really a moving target. Um, you know, I also do see different stances from various experts on how they're assessing that risk and the benefits and their interpretation of the science. Um, but I do think that if there is, if, if there are other options, so in the US, they, there are two other really good options and they ha do have a lot of these available that um, they might be able to funnel certain patients to, um, to, you know, the appropriate vaccine for their, for their population group. Uh, let, let's switch gears for a second and um, talk about what this pause does to vaccine hesitancy. You know, some have wondered whether the pause would give ammunition to the anti-vax conspiracists, uh, but there's, there's been some small uh, survey work done uh, that would suggest otherwise. Uh, what do you think? Does, does it fuel the anti-vaxxer movement or not? So I think that, you know, any bad news about the vaccines is definitely powerful ammunition for the anti-vaxxers. Um, I think it's really hard to change the mindset of the anti-vaxxers as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to change. But I think that, you know, there are there were a lot of people on the fence, you know, at the start of this, you know, probably six months ago, there were a lot of people that um, didn't know if they would get the vaccine or not. And, and at this point in time, you know, having seen the vaccine get get authorized and and get administered to millions of people, um, you know, they've changed their mind, saying, "I don't know if I'll get the vaccine." To yes, I will get the vaccine. But I think that, you know, this is probably a setback for some people that were on the fence. So there's going to have to be more data to to convince them to sort of be comfortable with taking this type of vaccine. But on the other, other hand, I do think that the fact that the safety surveillance system seems to be working so well does sort of bolster the argument um, that they can sort of trust the messaging more. You know, it was it's just six cases out of 6.8 million people. It's very rare. Um, you know, the regulators and authorities didn't have to come out and say they were doing a pause. Some people say, you know, it was maybe unwarranted. It, it caused um, unnecessary scare amongst people. But I think it's it's important for that um, transparency to be there. And I think that will help a lot when it comes to people uh, trusting the science and trusting future future messaging. So I think there's there's two two sides there with how how this will sort of play out. Sure. And, and um, you know, indeed, I think um, the, the survey work that I alluded to kind of uh, supports uh, your argument that, um, you know, there was a, a small survey I read by Echelon Insights found, finding that the J&J &J pause made 58% of Americans more confident in vaccines rather than less. So as, as you say, you know, it shows that the uh, medicine surveillance system is working as it should. And, uh, you know, let's let's use that as a segue to uh, some other polling, you know, in terms of uh, what um, the impact of this move could be in terms of the other mRNA based or the other mRNA based uh, vaccine manufacturers. Uh, there was a, a YouGov poll amongst the American public um, that asked that question, and they found um, a major decline in trust of the J&J &J vaccine specifically, but little or no decline in faith in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Confidence in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines remained unchanged from a previous survey, according to YouGov, 
indicating, quote unquote, that concerns over one vaccine do not spill over to other vaccines. So, um, you know, do uh, what, what's your take on that in terms of, uh, you know, confidence uh, in, the, in the other coronavirus vaccines? And uh, do you think that Americans are interpreting the pause, quote unquote, correctly, you know, in terms of not uh, letting their um, opinions about the J&J vaccine kind of spill over into the into the other ones? Yeah, I think that's interesting. You know, as we heard news coming out from both AstraZeneca and J&J, you know, the mRNA vaccines were sort of emerging as the the favorite. And also people were sort of saying like, oh, which one's better, the Pfizer or the Moderna, based on the different anecdotal reactogenicity that people were experiencing. But I definitely do think that this event, as it stands, does um, put another setback on the confidence of the adenoviral vector vaccines. Um, You know, it was already already suffering a little bit, you know, in terms of efficacy, at least in terms of protecting against um, symptomatic COVID and mild disease. If you remember the efficacy numbers for AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson were around 70% um, efficacious, whereas for the mRNA vaccines, it was around 90% um, efficacious. But then, you know, there was like the weighing up of you know, the the reactogenicity or the safety and also the the convenience, the ease of use, the the the, the cost. Um but I think the situation is still quite fluid. And um, you know, as we develop more of an understanding of the science of both of these modalities, because they are still quite new and we're still learning as we go, right? We haven't had either of these vaccines um you know, authorized or approved for, for max vaccinations in the, the past. So things might change. Something might happen with the mRNA vaccines and that'll bump the adenoviral vaccines up a little. Um, and, you know, from a public health perspective, the adenoviral vector vaccines are still, you know, more appropriate for max vaccinating, you know, the entire globe just because of the way that they can be stored and distributed. But, um, you know, on that on the, on the other hand, you know, the the mRNA vaccines, even though they're sort of seen as the golden vaccine of the moment, we also know that, you know, one of the new variants can likely break through um, Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine's protection, um, which likely means a, a booster shot after 12 months. I think um, Pfizer CEO came out saying that that was likely. So, that's not the greatest of news because, you know, we, we do know that even though these mRNA vaccines do seem to be quite efficacious, they also have a high reactogenicity. You know, it's not a walk in the park. A lot of people do need to take, you know, a day off just to to recover from from the after effects from the vaccine. So, um, so who knows, maybe confidence will shift around between the different types of vaccines. And, you know, we still need to find out how the protein-based vaccines are going to play out. You know, that's the type of vaccine that we have, well, at least the modality of vaccine that we have a lot more experience with, both on efficacy and safety. So, you know, I think I think there's still more to play out in this story. I, I don't think you're, I don't think we're there yet with with calling it. Sure. And, and you know, so, so notwithstanding, you know, the boosts to vaccine confidence uh, that, that the polling would suggest, um, there still are some real differences uh, between the two types of uh, major types of vaccines that are available now in terms of that reactogenicity uh, that people just need to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely, 
you know, I, I have friends that have taken it and they're like out of like all the vaccines I've ever taken in my life. I've never had anything close to what I experienced with, you know, these um, mRNA vaccines and, and even the Johnson Johnson vaccines, you know, they're, they're quite they're quite strong, which is I mean, it's a good thing because you do want to generate a, an immune response. If you if you didn't have any response, then it, you, you should be concerned that it might not be working and giving you immunity. Um, but it's something for sure to consider when um, in the grand scheme of things on, on which you which you would prefer because a lot of people um, don't want to take the vaccine. They might believe that it works, but they don't want to have that day of, you know, having a fever or having a headache or fatigue. So, And, and speaking of that, we should mention another subsequent update on this story. A letter published in the New England Journal of Medicine by University of Nebraska researchers asserted that the rare blood clots seen in some vaccine recipients could quote unquote be related to adenoviral vector vaccines. Scientists at J&J then refuted that the design of their COVID-19 vaccine, which is similar to the AstraZeneca shot, may explain why both have been linked to the blood clots. And this is according to a Reuters report. Is there similarity between cases seen among patients who received the J&J and AZ vaccines? And is that enough to substantiate a quote unquote class effect? Yeah, so I mean, I think as I said earlier that there's there's there have been definite links to that mechanism and I think, you know, that's the path that the science seems to be going along in terms of what is it about these adenoviral vector vaccines that um are, are causing, you know, this particular type of blood clotting in the brain and, you know, it's not just the aden- it's not just the AstraZeneca and the Johnson Johnson vaccine, it's also the um the Sputnik uh, five vaccine and, and the Cancina Biologics vaccine from China that are also denoviral vector vaccines um, that, that also should be monitored. I don't think we've seen much data there and I don't think we know if it's been reported or collected. But, you know, to that point, there's been a bit of debate. I think the J&J scientists came out pointing out differences between the, the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine saying, you know, they're, they're, they're different. It's not the same as the AstraZeneca vaccine in terms of the, the chimpanzee uh, adenoviral vector versus the human adenoviral vector. Also, you know, one shot versus two. Um, so I have seen a few, you know, few different theories and, and people trying to hypothesize on what the exact mechanism is. I don't think anyone can you know, confidently confirm exactly what is going on. There's been a lot of speculation, you know, good scientific speculation, I guess. Um, but, you know, what I have seen is that it, it might definitely have to do with something, you know, around the adenoviral vector itself rather than the spike protein. And, you know, what is exactly is that doing within a hyper-stimulated immune response? And I think if it can be confirmed that, you know, it is more linked to the adenoviral vector vaccines. And I think that would be, a li- you, that would make things a little bit more easier for the science because we can be more assured that it's not going to materialize with the mRNA and the protein-based vaccines. And there can be more of a pragmatic approach in monitoring the clots just for the adenoviral vector um, vaccine administration. So uh, at this point in time, you know, the, it's definitely there's definitely a lot of hypothesizing and and you know theorizing about 
um, what exactly is causing this. And, and it just, you know, it's just so interesting because the coronavirus itself is just such a mystery and how it works and how it's evolving and how it's probably going to work in the future. And, you know, the way that these vaccines are working also and some of the, um, the rare issues that are cropping up are also uh, seem to be, you know, mysterious. So, you know, it, it's almost like not surprising that, you know, we, we keep having these stumbling blocks on trying to figure out the science. And, uh, you know, this is probably the scenario with, you know, I'd venture to say the least chance of happening, but if the U.S. does decide to cancel the J&J vaccine on Friday, um, you know, they do have more than enough of the Pfizer shot to handle the rest of the population from, from the news reports that I've been reading. Uh, what might happen to those unused J&J doses? I'm sure they could could really use them overseas. Yeah, I mean, I mean, personally, I've always sort of seen that the Johnson Johnson vaccine should have always been like, you know, delegated to the countries that needed it more specifically because it was easy to store, you know, in lower socioeconomic countries and um, also cheaper. So, I don't think it, I'm sure there would be plenty of countries putting their hands up to get this. It's a very, very rare side effect versus, um, you know, what hasn't changed, which is that it, it is clinically meaningful in curbing severe disease and hospitalizations, which is what everyone is sort of gunning for. Um, but, you know, having said that, it also has kind of a bad look, you know, you know, to see, you know, what's not acceptable for the US is now fine for other um, poorer countries. And that sort of opens up a can of worms in terms of conversations of rich countries looking out for themselves. And that could, that's a different conversation. But I, I do think that sending the vaccines to countries, uh, you know, that are out of control, where the benefits for sure outweigh the risk, for example, like Brazil, you know, would be a wise move. Um, and I, I think the one shot factor of this vaccine in particular, um, still appears to be, you know, a pretty strong boon in, in the grand scheme of things. I think that, um, you know, when it comes to ending this pandemic, it's just all about, it's all about the race, you know, to get as many people vaccinated and, and um, you know, flattening that curve. I do think that it's going to be, for sure, a nuanced decision, you know, with the with the FDA and the CDC, if they make it this week, you know, it's it's, it's kind of hard to make predictions when you haven't seen all of the, the data or, you know, for me, I wouldn't even understand half of it, so um, most of it. So, um, you know, it, it will be a balanced decision based on probably the, the science, the risk and the benefits based on what's going on in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. And uh, yeah, it is a race uh, to get as many people vaccinated, especially, you know, before new variants kind of uh, complicate the situation. So, um, all right, that's that's the situation as we know it uh, as of April 20th, 2021. Um, make sure to uh, keep up with this fast moving story, everybody. Uh, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank you, Sarani, for once again, sharing your insight and perspective on the COVID vaccines with our audience. Thanks for having me, Mark. Absolutely. Uh, let's do it again. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, please give it a like. And um, if you're so inclined, please subscribe to the show uh, wherever you get your audio programming, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and help others discover the show. Okay. Uh, thanks for joining us. For Serrani Fernando, this has been Mark Iskowitz signing off. We'll see you next time on the MMM Podcast. Take care, everybody.